You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. All right, well, this morning, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. That's where our journey is going to begin. So as you're going to Matthew chapter 2, I, I love hearing pages turn and phones click. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat probably right in front of you or right underneath you. Feel free to reach under and grab that. Uh, get your phone out, open the scriptures, uh, and join us as we read together. But, but before we do that, we've been in a series called Heroes of the Faith. And we've looked at great men and women who have come before us who have had a faith that is like no other. They've trusted God in everything. They, they had these moments, they were almost like these volcanic moments where the pressure of society, the pressure of their life came to a breaking point and everything was about to explode, but God does something in the heart of a man or a woman and they have great faith in the midst of it. And it's that faith that will carry them through the hardship. It's that faith that will carry them through the trial. And so as we wrap this series up, as we prepare for a new year, as we are looking back on the past year, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of Mary. And we're going to look at this woman who, as we saw on Friday evening, she became a mother. She was a, a young couple with Joseph, right? These two, they traveled up to Bethlehem to have this child. And we've already seen how both of these young people had to have a pretty amazing faith. They had to trust God in a lot of things. And so this morning what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Mary's life post-birth. We're gonna look at two very important stories that are, are put in by the gospel writer Matthew and Luke about Mary's life and how the craziness didn't stop when she had Jesus. In fact, it had only just begun. And so we're gonna look at how she's gonna have to leave the land of Bethlehem because of an angry ruler, a jealous, narcissistic ruler. She's gonna to have to flee to Egypt. And then we're gonna see here, we're gonna fast forward 12 years and see what it looks like when Mary interacts with the Christ child as he's growing up and he's advancing and he's maturing. So this morning, Matthew chapter two, verses one through five. Let's read scripture together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, pause for effect, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, the reason we re we're reading this scripture is because we see, we see Jesus. He's been born. There's this celebratory moment where it's like, finally, the Messiah has come. Finally, the one who was predicted by all the prophets in the Old Testament. He's come upon the scene, and we're celebrating the reality that the Messiah is here. The one who's going to take all of our darkness. The one who's going to take all of our sin. The one who's going to take all of our pain. And he's going to redeem us from all of it. How many of you can relate to one of those words? Some of you are like, I can relate to every single one of those words. I know pain. I know sorrow. I know heartache. I know loneliness. Well, the Messiah has come on the scene, and this is the one. 
This is the man, this is the king, the true king, who's gonna make all those things right. He's gonna bring a true justice to the earth one day. And so there's this celebratory moment, but as we see all throughout scripture, every time there's a reason to celebrate, there's something lurking in the corner. And so we're introduced to this character, Herod, who's the king of Judea. He's the one who has authority. He's been given, it's been given to him by, by the higher ups. It's been given to him by Caesar Augustus, right? So it's his job to oversee this region. And he hears about a king that was born. Now, I wanna read to you a little bit about what King Herod was like. This comes from a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew written by uh, a heavyweight commentator named Craig Keener. He has this list He has this resume of Herod and how paranoid this man was. And so it makes sense when he hears another another king what he's about to do. While Herod was king, his brother-in-law, he noticed that his brother-in-law was getting too popular. And all of a sudden, his brother-in-law, as recorded by the historians of the day, had an accident drowning in a shallow pool. Like, they don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden, he just drowned in a pool that was about this deep, okay? There were some officials who... um, who were gaining more power and Herod saw this and he didn't like them and so he actually accused them of a crime that he thought they committed. One of his wives was involved in that and so he falsely accused them and he actually had them axed and then they found out later that these men were innocent. He had two of his sons, two of his physical sons strangled because he falsely suspected them of plotting against them. Again, falsely suspected. There was another wife involved in that. Five days before Herod died, the guy's gonna die. He knows he's gonna die, and he has one of his own sons killed, another one. In fact, there was a saying that went around in Judea that it was better to be a pig than to be Herod's son, because you were less likely to die if you were a pig. But there's more to Herod's story, so that's just stuff that happened in his family. He even had one of his favorite wives strangled in a fit of jealous rage, and she turned out again to be innocent of the charges that were brought against her. He had religious men burned alive because they messed with some of his stuff. Like literally, they just got into some of his stuff and he had them burned alive. And so as he was preparing for his death, we we heard about how he uh, killed one of his own sons. He actually ordered for dozens of nobles, right? Dozens of high-ranking people in his kingdom to be killed on the day of his death so that there would be more mourning throughout all of Judea. And the irony is that when he died, all these nobles were immediately set free and everybody celebrated, right? But this is the king. This is the king who hears about a new king that's been born. And so what do you think he's going to do? We know the story and we know what Herod does. He sends his men, his henchmen, right? He's like a a Don or a mafia boss that sends out his guys to go assassinate people. And he kills all the children in Bethlehem. He sends his cronies out there to Bethlehem to kill everybody two years and younger. But watch what happens in the story. An angel's gonna come to Mary and Joseph and say, buckle up, Herod's about to enter the crazy train. Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Imagine being Mary, okay? Let's, let's, let's hone in on Mary for a little bit. You just got done traveling, and we don't know what the time frame exactly was, but you just get done traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's a 10 to 12 day journey as a pregnant woman, right? You have a baby in a city where there's no room for you uh, in, in the place that you're staying, and so you literally have to give birth in a stable and put him in a feeding trough, okay? And then on top of that, you're gonna have wise men come, people that you don't know, shepherds, again, people that you don't know. How many of you moms, when you had your, your baby, you were like, I don't really wanna be around strangers right now? Well, Mary didn't have that option, okay? So she's having to entertain guests while at the same time trying to be a brand new mom. But now, now she's sitting there holding her child and her husband, Joseph, who has been through so much with her, comes to her again and says, honey, here's the deal. You remember that angel that told you you were gonna be with child and you trusted him? Remember that angel that came to me and said to hold on to this marriage, but that, that we were to raise this son together? Well, that angel came and visited me again and said, now just hold on, sit down, right? Maybe get some food in you. I don't want you to pass out. Well, that angel came to me again and said that we need to run. It said that we need to take our child and we need to run because Herod, the paranoid leader who does crazy things when he's on the crazy train, that leader has heard that our son was born and that our son was gonna be the king of the world. And he's gonna do something to hurt our son. Mary, we gotta leave. Imagine being that new mom. Imagine picking up your child and traveling way further than just 10 days. I don't know how long it would have taken to get to Egypt, but it was probably five times as long. They gotta take their whole lives that's already been very chaotic and they gotta move to an entirely different country so that their child can be safe. They had to move to a new community. They had to go and find a new place to stay and they had to wait out the rule of this evil man. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. The first point I wanna to give to you today is Mary had no choice but to trust. Write that down. Mary had no choice but to trust in the word of God. She had no choice before this, but now even more so, it's Mary, we gotta get out of here before it's too late. Because if we take our time, if we sit here and, and twiddle our thumbs, if, we, if we're looking at schools to get our kids into right now, we're not gonna have enough time. Herod's gonna come and something is gonna happen to us. See, one of the things that's unique about Mary and Joseph's story is that when you look at the course of human history, when you look at things like the birth of Christianity or you look at the things that happened to the great heroes of the faith that came before us, what you begin to realize is that there's a pattern that comes with the word of God. When God tries doing something in a community, when God tries doing something in your life, Oftentimes what you'll see is you'll see outside pressure begin to push you in a way that makes you very uncomfortable. It begins to push you in a way where now all of a sudden maybe you have to leave your home and go to a place like Egypt even though you weren't planning on it. In fact, I have six chunks of scripture. I'm not gonna read all of them to you, but they all talk about this issue. The Bible prepares us for moments like these. And so when we watch Mary and Joseph go through their affliction, we're actually supposed to look at them and not just feel, like, feel empathy for them. 
We're supposed to look at them and almost prepare ourselves because what happened to them, there's a very good chance if we're really followers of Jesus, in some way or another, it's gonna happen in our life too. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Peter says this, the great apostle who followed Jesus. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. He's like, if, some, if, if, if trials come your way, boy, isn't that crazy? He's almost being like sarcastic with how he's talking about it, right? Boy, it's strange that this is happening. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, he's encouraging his church and he's telling them to hold on to the truth of the gospel. For you yourselves know that you're destined for this affliction. You've been destined for it. Once you take the mantle of Christ on, once you go into the waters of baptism, what you have to realize is that there's a target on your back and there's gonna be pressure from the outside. There's gonna be pressure maybe from even inside your own family for the decision that you've made. Maybe there's gonna be pressure at the workplace for, for following after Jesus and people are gonna look at you strange and maybe they're even gonna push you out because they're not comfortable with you being there. Oftentimes we look at faith and we say great faith looks like fighting against those powers that come upon us. We look at someone like Daniel, right? Daniel knelt down and he prayed knowing, knowing that it was gonna get him in trouble. Joshua's gonna take the army, he's gonna walk around Jericho and then he's gonna attack the city. He's gonna fight for the cause of God. David is gonna go out into the battlefield and he's gonna slay Goliath. We look at these stories and we're like, I wanna be like that guy. That person has great faith. If I could just be like them in my life. But there are times in your life where God is not calling you to fight. Instead, he might be calling you to flee. Mary had to take her son and she had to run. And it took faith to do that. I've noticed something in the past you know, a year or two. Uh, there's been this trend happening in Aberdeen where we're seeing a lot of people from outside our city, even outside our state, moving in. Have you guys noticed that at all? In fact, at our downtown campus, I bet you we have 10 to 12 people who are originally from California that have moved to little old Aberdeen. And I can guarantee you that if you, if you were to ask them, okay, five years ago, would you have ever planned on being in the great city, the great metropolis of Aberdeen? Every single one of them would have said no. A hundred times over, no. But there were things that happened in their life that pushed them or applied pressure to them where they felt like, you know what? I need to leave. I need to get out of where I'm at and I need to go to Egypt because I don't know what's going on. I feel like the Lord is calling me to go to my Egypt and from there, he will make a way. In fact, some of you are sitting here even today. You've moved here from out of town and your thought process is, you know what? I'm gonna be here for a year, maybe two years, maybe three years. And then after that, once I get my footing, I'm gonna leave and go somewhere else. That's A-okay. We want you to be known. Make sure you're getting in a life group. Make sure you're a part of community while you're spending that time here. But we're, we're seeing this trend at our downtown campus. We're seeing it here of people from the outside coming to Aberdeen. And can I tell you something? If that's you, you know, it, sometimes it takes a lot of faith to do that. Sometimes it takes a lot of faith to uproot your family and uproot your kids and say, you know what, God, I don't know exactly what the future holds, but I'm gonna trust you. I feel like you're calling me to Egypt and maybe there's no governmental pressure that's forcing me to do this. 
Maybe there's no evil king that's narcissistic that wants to take my life or the life of my son, but maybe you're calling me to do this thing and it's gonna take a little bit of faith for me to follow you. See, Egypt isn't always a part of the plan, but sometimes it happens and sometimes it is a part of God's plan. It may not be a part of your plan for your life and your family, but maybe it's a part of God's plan. And maybe he's putting you in Egypt for a season, number one, so that you can be safe. But number two, maybe he's doing something inside of you and preparing you for something else. Maybe he's preparing you for something more. Maybe he's preparing you for the next chapter of of, of your life. Maybe he's building inside of you a faith so that when affliction and trials happen to you, you can approach them with joy instead of despair. I mean, remember what Peter said. Is it strange that these things happen to us? Not at all, but count it all joy when they do happen. Learn to rejoice in the midst of your affliction. Maybe God has you in Egypt right now. Maybe God has you in Egypt right now so that he can instill in you a trust that is so deep that you're willing to trust him with anything so when it comes time for the next chapter to open, when that door swings wide, you're saying, God, yes, I'm gonna walk through that door because I've been in Egypt for the last year or two years and I've learned to trust you. I didn't think things were gonna work out. My control mechanisms were going haywire. I didn't know if my kids were gonna get into school, but they did, and they got in around a good group of friends. I didn't know if I was gonna find a community of people that I could be with, but I did. And so I've learned to trust you in the midst of my trial and my suffering. When people get to that place, when people get to that place, when the doors of life begin to open, they don't walk through timidly. They walk through boldly, and they walk through with faith, because that's the very thing that God has instilled in them. Mary and Joseph had no choice but to trust. They had no choice but to trust. The second point I wanna give to you is that Mary had to trust Jesus with his choice. We're gonna fast forward 11-ish years of Jesus and Mary's life. We're gonna look at a different story, but what we're gonna see is that Jesus is getting older. And how many of you as parents, you know that there's a, there's a certain element of control that you have over your kids, right? You get to tell them when to go to sleep, hallelujah, right? You get to tell them when they can stop having candy. You get to tell them when too much is too much. You get to tell them when to turn the TV off. You have immeasurable amounts of control over your children, and it's awesome, Okay? And Mary has that with Jesus. She can control Jesus. She can put Jesus in her arms and she can go to Egypt with him. Mary can control his upbringing. She can control what he eats and what he drinks. She can control what he wears, praise God. There's all sorts of control that comes when your child is young. But what we're gonna see now is that Mary's control begins to get less and less and it terrifies her. Luke 2, 41 through 51. Luke 2, 41 through 51. Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And Mary, his mother, said to him, ladies, feel free to underline this like 10 times, okay? Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary's saying, Jesus, what are you doing? I've been terrified for the last three days. You could have at least told me you were gonna stay in Jerusalem, but even then I wouldn't have liked it. Jesus, you're freaking me out, and this is what Jesus says to them, right? Kids, underline this 10 times, right? (laughs) Jesus says this, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Something happened in this story. Mary was incredibly stressed out. But Jesus goes back with her. And notice what it says. It says the same thing after Jesus is born. Or excuse me, after the shepherds come and visit the manger. She treasured these things in her heart. She's preserving this memory. It's almost as if when the gospel writer of Luke was writing this story, he went and heard it directly from the horse's mouth. Sorry, that's probably not the best way to refer to women. Okay, but he he heard it exactly from Mary. Why? Because she treasured it in in her heart. This story, the story where Jesus stressed her out probably more so than ever before. Maybe, Maybe Egypt was part of that, right? Maybe Egypt has this one beat. But she's so stressed out, she's searching for, how many of you ever lost a kid before? Is that not like one of the most terrifying things ever, right? As a mother especially, I mean, dads are typically like, yeah, they'll come back eventually. I mean, that's how I am, right? My wife freaks out when, when we, she loses our kid for like a minute, and I'm like, ah, they're probably just running around. And she's like, Micah, the, the front door was unlocked. They could be halfway down Aberdeen's, you know, city blocks by now or whatever, right? But Mary's terrified. She's freaked out. So I want to share with you just briefly um, some insight I gained as a father. Um, I, I, I sent a text out or asked the different uh, spouses of the pastors here at New Life, right? There's four pastors, uh, so that means there's four brave women that are keeping us in line. Uh, God bless them. But I asked them a question. I just said, what is the hardest part about being a mom? Like, just, just whatever you think. What's the hardest part about being a mom? And the answers I got, my my wife said this, raising your kids and then letting them make their own choices. Uh, Anne Anne said this, the the hardest part about being a mom for her is the fear of losing them, both physically and spiritually. So again, related to their choices, right? Shelly said when when your child hurts, no matter what age they are, whether they're a little tiny baby or whether they're a grown adult, No matter what age they are, I would take their pain on myself in a moment. I would take their pain on myself in a moment. Kendra, likewise, she's got the youngest kid on the team. She's got a little two-year-old, right? Right in the toddler's season of life. And basically what she said is that in the progression of their lives, as they get older, the more independent they become, the less control that you have. And I thought about that for a second, and I thought about our pastoral team, and I thought about our families, and how funny is it that we have, we have 
two guys whose kids are really young. Greg has got like a, a two-year-old, right? And he's, he's walking and running and grunting like crazy, right? In fact, I think his son was grunting at my daughter the other day. I don't know if that was like him hitting on her or something, but like, but like he's got a little two-year-old. And so it's that stage of like they're learning how to run. They're becoming way more independent, which means they're getting into everything. And, and as a mom, you know, what does that mean? It means you have a little bit less control. And my kids, I got a three-year-old and a six-year-old, right? And so my six-year-old went to school for the first time this year, and it freaks us out. Why? Because for seven to eight hours a day, we don't have control of our kid anymore. Her teacher's the one who's teaching her. Her teacher's the one who's investing into her. And when you look at Pastor Rod and, and, and Ann, their, their kids are kind of in that middle high to high school. And I, I don't know what that's like yet, but I can imagine that's even more terrifying. Because now your kids are, are driving vehicles and now they're beginning to make more of their own choices that have consequences and it brings with them pain or it brings with them, you know, goodness, right? And then you look at Chuck and Shelly and, and, and they're just older than the rest of us, right? Praise God, okay? But they got kids that are out of the house now and they're having families of their own, right? So there's this spectrum, which I think is really healthy. We have this spectrum of perspective on our pastoral team. But one of the things you see is that as a child progresses in their life, you have less and less control to the point where one day they're going to get married or one day they're going to go off to college and all that control that you had before, that immeasurable power is gone. And it's terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying. And it takes a faith that is great in order to make it through that. I mean, think, look, at, look at Mary's life. She's got a 12-year-old son she's responsible for. They would make these treks to Jerusalem year after year after year. This isn't Jesus' first time going to Jerusalem. This is his 12th time making this trek. He knows the temple well. And he, he stays behind because he's staying in the house of the Lord. Here's what's interesting about what Jesus says. When, when you read that text, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's not a translation, right? Most, most translations will say that, but that's not actually a translation. It's more of an interpretation. They're telling you what they're perceiving these words to mean. And so a better way to actually translate this, when Jesus says that, he's in my or that I'm in my father's house, a better way to translate this is actually, I'm about my father's business, Jesus is saying, there's a plan and a purpose for my life, and so what I'm doing here, Mom, like, you saw me talking and being surrounded by these religious leaders. You heard the answers that I'm giving. Why are you wondering? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Even from a young age, we see this thing happening between Jesus and Mary, where Mary was the one who provided everything, but Jesus is getting to an age faster than most kids do, Right? So if you have a 12-year-old who's like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out at my friend's house in three days, and you're not going to know where I'm at, that's probably not okay. okay? But Jesus, he's getting more independent. He's, he's maturing faster. And what Mary realizes is that she doesn't have the control that she used to over this little boy. Her little boy's growing up. But more than that, her little boy has a different calling than anybody else. Jesus was about his father's business. Mary had to trust Jesus with his choice. And this would not be the hardest decision that Mary would have to face with Jesus. This is a stepping stone for the hardest decision that Mary would ever have to face because Jesus is gonna make the decision to go to the cross. I want you to think about that for just a second. Moms, you especially. 
Jesus is gonna make the decision to go to the cross. And Mary had to trust Jesus with that decision. Mary had to trust that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Mary had to know that there was no control she had left over her son and that this son who, when, was, when he was 12 years old, would, would, would go and hide in the temple, right, and he would sit with the religious leaders that were surrounding him. But this young boy would grow to become a man and she would have no control over him, so much so that she would literally have to watch him die on a cross. Mary's gonna have to deal with the trauma of this. She's gonna have to deal with the pain and the rage and the agony of watching her son that she can no longer control suffocate and die on a cross. All Mary could do was trust Jesus with his decision. See, what's a mother's job, right? Think about that for a little bit. Moms, think about what, what you would look at and say, okay, what's my job description as a mom? She saw Jesus surrounded by religious leaders in the temple. But now Jesus is older, and guess what? When he goes to the cross, he's gonna be surrounded by religious leaders, except for this time, they're not listening to the words he's saying, but they're throwing jeers at him, and they're trying to get him killed. The tables have turned. What's a mother's job? It was Mary's job to speak truth over him as a child, but now these religious leaders are uttering lies against him. It's a mother's job to help pick their kids up when they fall, but Mary couldn't do this anymore for Jesus. She couldn't do it when he fell under the pain and the agony of the 39 lashes. She couldn't pick him up when he fell, when he was carrying the cross to Golgotha. It's a mother's job to clothe, clothe their children. It's their job to make sure that they're dressed appropriately, but now when Jesus is going to the cross, she's going to watch these soldiers tear his clothes from his body. It's a mother's job to kiss the head of their child so they know everything will be okay, but now Jesus' head is being beaten, it's being spit on, and they're gonna take a crown of thorns and they're gonna put it on top and, 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 and press it into his skull. It's a mother's job to nourish their child with literally their physical body so they can grow healthy and strong, but Jesus is gonna cry out, I'm thirsty on the cross and there's nothing Mary can do. A mother's job is to protect their child from evil, but she had to watch as evil overtook her son. A mother's job is to never reject or forsake their child, and she's standing at the foot of the cross listening to her boy, her baby boy, cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a mother's job to protect and help prevent her child from falling into sin. But Mary has to watch as Jesus forgives those who have sinned against him. But she has to watch as Jesus absorbs all of our sin, all of our wrongdoings, all of our shame, all of our guilt. Jesus is absorbing all of that on the cross. And all Mary can do is stand and watch. Mary had to trust Jesus with his choice. She had to trust in the midst of her despair. She had to trust in the midst of her chaos and her agony. She had to trust when the breathing was almost too hard for her to do because of all the pain that was on her shoulders and her chest. She had to trust as she watched her son go through all of the things that, that are intuitively against what a mother would do to their child. 
She had to watch everything. But Jesus was doing something. Yes, he was doing something for, for the world, but he was doing something for Mary. Jesus' death and resurrection proved something to her. That in these moments, Mary could do nothing to save Jesus. But Jesus did everything to save Mary. Mary could do nothing to save her son. She could do nothing to save that little boy that she had birthed back in Bethlehem. She could do nothing to save the boy that had, had stayed behind in Jerusalem that freaked her out, but she treasured those things in her heart. She could do literally nothing to save him, and that's exactly the way Jesus wanted it. Because it was only in that moment when Mary gave up total control it was only in the moment when she heard about how her son had resurrected from the dead that Jesus proved to her there was nothing she could do to save herself or save him. The only thing that she could do now, the only control that she had now was to realize that Jesus had done everything to save her. The message that we need as parents, the message we need as future parents is to realize there's nothing we can do. We can do everything to, to set our kids up for success. We can give them a good home. We can teach them the ways of Jesus. We can teach them the stories of Christmas and Easter. We can do all those things, but at some point in their life, they're gonna walk away and do their own thing, and you're gonna have to give up complete control, and the only thing you can do is trust that they're gonna make the right decisions. And I think what God wants us to see is that in those moments, what we need to remember is that we are in the best place when we give God all of the control because we realize we save nobody, but Jesus did everything to save us. You know who's gonna save your kids? Jesus is gonna save your kids. You know who's gonna save you? Jesus is gonna save you. Mary's story is meant to show us what it looks like for a parent for a mother, even for a father, to give up total control to God. Even in the midst of the most agonizing thing a mother could ever go through. Jesus did everything to save you. The reality of the gospel is this. We all, like sheep, we've wandered away. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've committed sins against him that makes us deserving of death and judgment, we deserve that. Yet what we see Jesus doing is he's the perfect son who came to take away the sins of the world. He came to take your sins upon himself. He came to take your shame and your guilt so that when you look at the cross, you see not your own pathway to salvation, but you realize that he did everything to save you and that there's nothing I can do to save myself. And when you come to that realization, it allows you to put your faith in God and you like Mary, can have a great faith. You, like Mary, can make it through, not without pain, not without suffering, not without heartache, not without trials. We know those things will come. But you can make it through with a faith that is strong so that when you come out the other side, you're stronger in your faith than you've ever been before. So this morning, I would ask you, as we just get done celebrating Christmas, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus who came and died on a cross to, to appease the wrath of God, to appease the judgment that we deserve? He took it upon himself. Do you know this Jesus who did it because he wanted you 
He loved you. He cared for you. Because there's a point where you have to give up control to him, and that's what faith is. Faith happens when you say, Jesus, I'm done. I need you to come in and change my life. Do you know that Jesus today? Because if you don't, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that connection card and on there you can check, I'm accepting Christ for the first time. I'm recommitting my life to him. Put that in, put that in the box as you leave so we as pastors know or come talk to me after the service and we'll connect with you sometime. We'll talk with you about what this looks like. What does it look like for you to follow after Jesus? Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you gave us the Christmas story. You gave us a story of how you were a baby born in a manger, and you grew, and you grew, and you grew into the man that would one day die for our sins. Lord, let us all be like Mary today. Let us be like that woman who went through immeasurable suffering, who went through the stages of life from, from infancy to death with her son, and she watched him go through all of it, and every step of the way, she had to give up more control and more control. Lord, would we see that as a pattern for our life, not just with our kids, but with everything, that we are called to give you more and more and more control to the point where you have everything and we have nothing. Lord, let us trust you with the depths of our soul. Let us trust you with the depths of our relationships, the relationships we have with our kids, the relationships we have with our community and with our family and our friends. Jesus, this is all about you. We worship you and we thank you this morning. In your name, amen.